We will be continuing our teaching series in James called Born Again Behavior. Two weeks ago, we looked at James's fiery rebuke against rich unbelievers who persecuted poor believers by not paying them for mowing their grain fields and by removing or stripping them of their right to be heard in a court of law. In the next section, James shifts his focus from the persecutors to the persecuted. He comforts these battered believers by teaching them how to be patient in the midst of suffering. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. We'll be focusing on verses 7 through 11 today. I have entitled this message, Patience in Suffering. Let's read the text, pray for God's help, and then we'll get to work. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time of teaching, and we pray that you humble us now that you open our, our ears and our minds to the truth so that we can hear it and understand it and, and open our hearts to the truth and, and send the Holy Spirit to work His sanctifying power in us so that we can apply and live out the truth. Teach us about patience today. This is not an easy thing for us. It's not easy for any of us. So teach us about patience today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's begin at verse 7a. Verse 7a says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James begins this section with an imperative or command. Be patient. The Greek word for patient is makrothumeo, which means to be long-tempered. Paul used the same Greek verb when describing love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, where he said, Love is patient, macro through mayo, long-tempered. In our context, this Greek word refers to being or actually patiently enduring difficult people. That's what it means here in this context. Now, notice with me the reappearance of James's favorite title for believers in the middle of the verse. We see it right there. It says, brothers. We didn't see this back in verses 1 through 6 because James was referring to rich unbelievers who were persecuting the church. He was not, in a sense, addressing believers. And these rich unbelievers who were persecuting, they were the difficult people James commanded his readers to patiently endure. Notice also the duration at the end of the verse. James commanded his audience to be patient for how long? Until the coming of the Lord. This phrase refers to the return of Christ, the second advent. This is a, a popular theme 
in Scripture. More than 500 verses in the Bible speak of His return. Believers are to remain steadfast through various trials until Christ's return. We saw that back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And believers, we see in our text, believers are to endure difficult people until Christ returns. That is the duration from now until He returns, until He comes back. James points to the return of Christ three times in this passage. We see him do it in verse 7 here. We see him do it in verse 8, and we'll see him do it in verse 9. He did this to not only illustrate the duration of the believer's patience, but to remind believers of their hope. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the things of this world or in the people of this world or in getting justice in this life. Our hope is in the living Christ. Our hope is in... His presence after death. Our hope is in the heavenly inheritance He provides for us. Our hope is in His return. Our hope is in our own resurrection and glorification. And our hope is in His everlasting kingdom. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. We learned about that last week on Easter. The Greek word for coming is parousia. It means arrival. Parousia is an important eschatological term. We see it throughout the New Testament, and it is most frequently associated with the return of Christ. For example, we see it in Matthew 24, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. What makes parousia unique here is that it also includes the idea of Christ's presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. So it, it speaks to His return, but here in this context, it also speaks to His presence. Here's my paraphrase of, of verse 7a. This is what I think James seems to be saying here. Patiently endure difficult people, brother and sister believers, until Christ arrives and establishes His glorious presence. That seems to be what he's saying here. In the next line, James gives his audience an example of patience they must follow. He actually provides a total of three examples of patience for them in this section. Let's move to verses 7b through 8a. It says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. And he says, you also be patient. The first example of patience he gives is of a farmer. This was an agrarian community or society. Land cultivation, agriculture, farming, these sorts of things drove the economies of ancient societies like the one that we're looking at here, especially in and throughout the Mediterranean region. In the land of Israel, the early rains came in late October and early November. Heavier rains then came in December through February, and uh, the latter or spring rains came in April, or they come in April and May. Now, the deal is the farmers had to wait patiently for these rains to arrive to water their crops. That was the only source of rain or only source of water they had for their crops there throughout Israel. 
Now, the spiritual parallel here is is fairly simple. Believers are to patiently wait for Christ to arrive just as a farmer patiently awaits or waits for the rains to arrive. That's the parallel. Now, we need to note that waiting for the rains and waiting for Christ is not passive waiting. The farmer is active as he patiently waits. He tends to his crops. He pulls weeds. He prunes sick and damaged branches. He fertilizes. He deals with insects, foxes, and other threats. The believer is to be active as he waits patiently for Christ's return. He is to to tend to his spiritual life. He is to pull sin and kill it. He is to fertilize and feed himself with the Word of God. He is to deal with threats such as temptation and the devil. And he is also to to spread the seeds of the gospel through evangelism. Patient waiting is not passive waiting. There is no such thing as passive waiting for believers. We're never supposed to sit on our hands. Believers are to be busy with the things of the Lord as we wait for Him. Notice the repetition in verse 8a. James apparently understands that that patience won't come easily to his audience, so he repeats his command, you also be patient. Aristotle once said, patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. I agree with him to a a degree. Uh, I think there's some truth to his statement. There is a a bitterness to patience because it goes against our Adamic nature. We are naturally impatient. And living in the land of fast everything, fast technology, fast money, fast food, and, and fast love, and fast literally everything certainly doesn't help us at all. It doesn't help us with patience. We are accustomed to speed. We are addicted to speed. In fact, it's kind of funny. Whenever my phone starts to lag, I get mad at my phone and threaten to throw it. That's how used to speed I am, and that's how used to speed you are. And suffering tends to amplify our impatience. Suffering because of persecution does this even more so. R. Kent Hughes hit the nail on the head when he wrote, Hard times make us long for Christ's return. And I'd even add to that that they make us somewhat impatient for his return. When we are hurting, we frequently express our hope for the second advent, don't we? We say things like, oh, I wish Christ would return today or return right now or return tonight or tomorrow. We say these things all the time. James's audience was growing more and more impatient as they suffered at the hands of the rich and all the other persecutors in their community. But they had to learn to be patient like the farmer. He knows the rains will come. They always do. And we know Christ will come because His Word is true. So we patiently wait for His arrival. And patience won't be as bitter if we keep busy with the things of the Lord and if we focus on the fruit. In the next two lines, James identifies two things believers should and should not be doing as they patiently wait for Christ to return. Let's move to verses 8b through 9. The next thing James says is, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Believers are to establish their hearts while they wait for the coming of the Lord. This means that we are to strengthen ourselves spiritually as we wait for Him. How do we do this? We do it by reading the Word. We do it by studying the Word. We do it by meditating on the Word. We do it by memorizing the Word. We, we do it by obeying the Word. Um, we do it by spending time in prayer, by participating in the sacraments, baptism and communion. We, we strengthen ourselves spiritually when we fellowship with other believers and sharpen one another. And, and we are actually strengthened spiritually as we go through trials that test our faith and produce steadfastness, which leads to what? Maturity. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We are spiritually strengthened through these things as we patiently wait for the Lord. And notice with me also the little phrase. It's a sweet little phrase right there at the end of 8b. It says, is at hand, is at hand. The apostles knew that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, Psalm 90 verse 5. And none of them predicted Christ would return in their lifetime. But the apostles were sure Christ's return was near or at hand. Christ himself declared this multiple times in Scripture, especially in the final chapter of Revelation. In verse 7, he said, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And in verse 12, he said, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And in verse 20, he said, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And Peter actually predicted that critics would arise and deny the return of Christ. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. He said this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And Peter says, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And he says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, the Scriptures say over and over, repeatedly, that the return of Christ is near. And we are to, to not only believe this, but we are to embrace this truth and reality. I like what MacArthur wrote. He said, 
The return of Christ is the next event on God's prophetic calendar and could happen at any moment. The second thing James identifies here is something believers should not be doing as they patiently wait for the coming of the Lord, grumbling against one another. James is basically telling his audience to avoid bitterness and complaining. Now, we are prone to bitterness, especially during prolonged suffering. And when bitterness takes root, it begins to manifest itself through complaining. You know, complaining about our pain, complaining about our circumstances, complaining about our wives, our spouses, our children, complaining about other believers, and so on and so forth. An embittered spirit is the root of complaining, and all complaining is an assault on the providence and sovereignty of God. This is why we are commanded to do everything without complaining and arguing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. R. Kent Hughes wrote, James was writing to people in such a miserable state that they were easily at each other's throats, Close pressures had made them jumpy and quick to take offense. Now, to motivate these folks to put an end to this ungodly behavior, James paints a powerful word picture for them. He has Christ, the judge of all, standing at the door of the divine courtroom, ready to to fling it open and take his seat on heaven's Gabbatha, John 19, verse 13, to do what? To judge the living and the dead. I talked about this judgment two weeks ago in in quite a bit of detail. And, And one thing is for certain, this judgment is near. In fact, when Christ comes This judgment comes with him. It will happen shortly after he comes. He will judge unbelievers and believers. He will judge unbelievers for their sins and rejection of him. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. And he will judge believers for their deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans chapter 14 verses 10 through 13. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 10. He will judge our every thought, word, and deed. Romans 2.16, Matthew 12.36, Ecclesiastes 12.14. Believers who have the right motives and proper conduct and a a solid record of serving the Lord, what are they going to do? They're going to receive a reward from the Lord. But believers who have wrong motives, believers who have improper, unholy conduct, believers who have little to no service, what shall they receive? They think they're going to receive a reward from the Lord, but they will actually lose it. They will be saved, yet as through fire, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. The question is, are we ready for the return of Christ and the day of judgment? Ask yourself that. Think about that for a moment. The the return of Christ and this judgment is at hand. It is right around the corner. It's not too late to change our motives. It's not too late to change our conduct. It's not too late to begin to serve the Lord faithfully. And it's certainly within our ability to do these things because we have the Holy Spirit. Many Christians wrongly assume that they will somehow receive a reward from Christ for simply being Christian. 
Why would Christ reward Christians for something they did not do to themselves? We didn't make ourselves Christians. God made us Christians when he regenerated us and and planted the, the gifts of repentance and faith in us. We don't receive a reward for being Christian, but we can and will receive a reward if we live the way Scripture tells us to live. Christ blesses obedience. Christ rewards obedience. In my humble opinion, the greatest reward we could ever receive from Him is His affirmation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Matthew 25, verse 23. We need to live like Christ the judge is coming at any moment. Like he could be here in an hour or tonight or tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. We should live our lives in light of that very sober-mindedly. And we should serve him. We should serve him. In the next line, James gives the second example of patience. Let's move to verses 10 through 11a. James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. He now points to the Old Testament prophets. They provide an even stronger example because, like James's audience, they had to patiently endure suffering at the hands of others. The Old Testament prophets were brutally persecuted for speaking in the name of the Lord. Jeremiah endured major opposition throughout his ministry, bringing him so much sorrow that he became known as the weeping prophet. At one point, he was thrown into a muddy cistern and left there to die. Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 4 through 13. Micaiah was persecuted after delivering a prophecy declaring the destruction of King Ahab's household and kingdom. And he was slapped around, he was thrown into prison, and he was fed only bread and water. 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. Ezekiel endured much persecution. He even had to endure the death of his beloved wife right there during his ministry. How sad to lose your wife. Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 18. We know Daniel was a tremendous prophet, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. What happened to him for speaking the truth, speaking the word of God? He was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Hosea, the the minor prophet Hosea, he had to endure a heartbreaking marriage to an unfaithful, adulterous wife. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. The list goes on and on and on. We read about John the Baptist in the New Testament, but he was actually an Old Testament prophet. He was incarcerated and later beheaded for speaking in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35b through 38 summarizes the suffering of the Old Testament prophets. It does this really, really well. I'll read it. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In verse 11a, James calls those who patiently suffer and remain steadfast, blessed. In fact, he inserted the pronoun we because the other apostles felt the same way and they would totally agree with his statement here. The Greek word for blessed is makarizo, and it means to regard as fortunate. Those who patiently suffer and remain steadfast do not actually do this on their own. They don't do it by their own strength or power or volition, will, or anything like that. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that impels them. They are carried along by God. God is with them and and in them, and He is gracing them with power. He is gracing them with strength. He is gracing them with joy to be steadfast and to press on, to endure. This is why they are regarded as fortunate, as blessed. The smile of God rests upon such a life. In the last line, James gives his third and final example of patience. Let's move to verse 11b. James says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Lastly here, he points to Job. I would say next to Jesus, Job is the poster child for suffering, right? For patiently enduring suffering. The opening scene in Job tells us that that Job had impeccable godly character, a a large family with ten children. Uh, He had massive wealth. We see this in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The second scene tells us that the angels, including the fallen angel Satan, appeared before God in heaven. After questioning Satan's whereabouts, God mentions his righteous servant Job. But Satan begins to argue that Job is only faithful, Job is only righteous, Job is is only blameless because of what he has, not because he actually loves God in his heart. Now God lays down a challenge that will prove that Satan is not only wrong but foolish for questioning his omniscient wisdom. Satan will be permitted to take away all that Job has. We see that in verses 6 through 12. The third scene tells us that Job lost his wealth, lost his servants, lost his children, and he lost his home, one right after the other. But he did not sin or charge God with any wrongdoing. This is in verses 13 through 22. The fourth scene tells us that the angels and Satan appeared once again in heaven before God. God told Satan, Job still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. He was basically, in a way, rubbing that in Satan's face. You did not prevail here, Satan. And Satan replies, if you take away his health, if you go after his health next, Surely he will curse you to your face. And God said, go for it, but you cannot kill him. 
We see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. The fourth scene tells us that Satan struck Job with with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. After scraping his wounds with a piece of broken pottery, Job's wife finally speaks up and says, Why don't you just curse God and die? But Job's response is remarkable. He replied, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then it says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's in verses 7 through 10. From this point forward, Job has many interactions with some of his closest friends. They had come to console him, but they end up criticizing him for not repenting of his sin. That's what they thought about Job. They thought the reason why all these things are happening to you is because you must be in some dreadful sin. You've got to repent. But the fact is, Job had no sin to repent of. It says in chapter 1, he was blameless. But they didn't believe him, and they argued with him over and over for 35 chapters. Never once did his friends bring him any comfort. Instead, they made his bad situation much worse. Job did cry. He did complain a bit. He cried or complained about the day he was born and these things. But he absolutely refused to sin against God or to give up the faith, so to speak, or to renounce God. He refused to do those things. Instead, he kept believing and he remained steadfast. In chapter 13, verse 15, he said something that's just truly amazing. It's in, it's in your bulletins. He said, though, speaking of God, he said, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. How phenomenal is that? Now at the end of it here, God restored and increased Job's fortune and, and gave him, gave him you know, children again. We see this in chapter uh, 42, verses 10 through 17. He gave him everything that he had and gave him a little bit more, but he, he gave him new children, I think the same number of children. And we would all admit that you can't replace a lost child. So these weren't replacement children. They were just new children to be a blessing to him. But this time, God gave Job something far more valuable than physical, temporal blessings. He gave Job spiritual blessings, such as profound humility and a closeness with God he had never experienced before. We see this in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Now, what are, why are we talking about this here? Well, we need to understand, we had to build some context here. And, and here's what's going on. James points to Job for two basic reasons. He uses Job as as an example for two basic reasons. First, he wants his readers, his audience, including us, to see the steadfastness of Job, his ability to patiently endure suffering. It is quite remarkable. It really is. Second, and this is the more important reason, he wants his audience to see the compassion and mercy of God which is displayed in the physical and spiritual blessings Job received at the end of it all. And here's the deal. If we remain steadfast and patiently endure suffering till death 
or till the return of the Lord, whichever comes first, our end will exceed Job's earthly end. We will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept in heaven for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This is precisely what we focused on Easter last Sunday. And this inheritance, I'm going to say this, this inheritance is worth all of our suffering on earth. In fact, it is worth 10,000 lifetimes of suffering on earth. A hundred thousand lifetimes of suffering on earth. A million, a billion lifetimes of suffering on earth. It is an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs our light and momentary troubles. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. May we, the people of God, believers, may we be patient until the coming of the Lord. May we learn from the farmer who waits for the rains and takes care of his crops in the meantime. May we establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand and avoid bitterness and complaining, especially against other believers. The judge is standing at the door. May we learn from the the blessed or blessed prophets who patiently endured suffering for speaking in the name of the Lord. And may we learn from Job, the steadfast recipient of God's boundless compassion and mercy. Amen.